That's an awesome idea. I think I may, oh. I may do that. I guess we're done here, ladies. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the work's done. We don't need to do anymore. That's, that's perfect. Excellent. Welcome to the In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. We're your co-hosts for the In Vino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are a number of tales to be shared about women and wine. This is a space to offer a narrative and chat about both. Today we're excited to chat with Dr. Christina Mitchell, who wants to understand more about gender bias and student evaluations and more thoughts about teaching and learning in higher ed. So Christina is an instructor of political science at Texas Tech University. She received her BA from University of North Texas, Gomeen Green, and her MA and PhD from the University of Texas at Dallas. Her research interests include pedagogical technique, best practices in higher ed, gender and diversity, and issues in international relations. Her research has appeared in the journal World Trade, uh, PS, Political Science, Pol- and Politics, and the journal Political Science Education. She teaches undergraduate courses in research methods, game theory, public policy, international relations, and international political economy. So we should have a very interesting conversation with Christina today. We want to welcome her to have a chat with us at InVinoPod. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. So beyond the introduction and the brief bio that we'll include with this episode, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what's the thing you're into now and what you're doing today? Um, So a lot of my research these days has really focused a lot on gender, um, because as soon as you start studying gender, you really start seeing it everywhere. Um, I think even just down to the way we communicate with each other in meetings or even in social situations, um, when I'm teaching, interacting with my students, um, I just start seeing those gender dynamics everywhere. And as a social scientist who's trained um, in actually taking those experiences and putting them into a sort of mathematical model to study the statistical significance of those interactions, I thought, you know, this is perfect for me to take my training as a social scientist and combine it with something that I'm really interested and passionate about um, and start seeing what kind of academic literature that I can contribute to. So how did you first get into the field of political science? Um, That's a great question. I think it started really early when um, my dad and I used to sit out on the back porch um, when I was in, you know, middle school and high school. And he would talk about politics and ask my opinion and make me feel really valued. And I think that interest in politics and policy just continued through my undergraduate education. Um, And then when I started my PhD, I really thought that I was going to be focusing exclusively on international political economy, um, studying the World Trade Organization and trade disputes, which actually is really fascinating right now, um, considering a lot of the trade policies we're seeing out of the Trump administration. Um, But even within political science, Obviously, the lack of women in government is a huge issue in the United States and everywhere all over the world. So I think that those two issues really combine really well. It's really interesting. And it sounds like, um, from what I've read in your bio, you are connected to aspects of uh, women in political science organization at your campus at Texas Tech, and you're serving on different roles in that aspect. So can you share a little bit about your advocacy in that area as well? 
Absolutely. Um, I think that as women in, um, in institutions of higher education, it's our responsibility to help the women that are coming up behind us. I remember very specifically a few women um, in my department where I was getting my PhD who took time out of their lives to make sure that I knew that I could succeed as a woman and as a young mother. Um, I had two of my kids while I was in grad school. And so I really felt obligated and empowered to take that experience and and try to replicate it for the graduate students in our program. So in the Women in Political Science organization, um, we don't have very many of us. Um, currently, there's one other faculty member in the Department of Political Science that is a woman. And... Um, but we do have a handful of graduate students. And what we've tried to do is a mix of both social events where we can just all, you know, go to a bar together and have a cocktail and talk about our experiences and complain and vent and get ideas from each other. Um, but also we try to host some more formal events. Um, this last spring, we had an event where we invited specifically the men in our department and we asked them to come and hear our stories and to hear how they can help us. Because I think um, one place that we struggle is how to communicate with men about gender issues. Um, mm -hmm. Because men don't wanna feel like they're being excluded or attacked. So a lot of my, my goal with the Women in Political Science organization is to give concrete examples of here's how you can help us. Um, you know, here's where we're struggling, but here are the specific things that you can do that will help us as women in, in a male-dominated discipline. And I've really found that that's been very successful. Um, when given sort of specific action items, almost all of the men that I've interacted with have been very receptive. Yeah, that sounds great. Tell me about like an example you might offer them at that meeting. Absolutely. Um, so I, I can think of one time where, um, so I serve on the executive committee in my department. Um, I'm the only woman out of uh, a six member committee. And I just remember one time when I was sitting in a meeting and I gave my thoughts um, on a specific example. And I know this has happened to everyone. Then immediately afterward, a man said the exact same thing that I said. Mm -hmm. um, and he wasn't doing it to be malicious. He just repeated my idea as though it sort of came organically from him. And then, then we went with it as a committee. And later that day, I went to my department chair, who's very supportive. And I said, hey, I just, I, I'm not saying you've done anything wrong, but I don't think you noticed that this happened. You know, So one thing that you can do to help me is if you hear that happen in a meeting where a man sort of restates what I've said, um, all you have to do is say, yeah, you know, that was a great idea. And it's really similar to what Christina was just saying. And then move on. That's it. That's all it takes. Um, and I've definitely noticed that my chair and other men in the department have started taking on that strategy. And I didn't come up with that strategy. That came out of the, uh, the Obama White House women strategy, where they name specifically women who've had good ideas. Um, and, and that was something that was really easy to, to tell my chair, this is a way you can help me. You haven't done anything wrong, and nor has anyone this is just a very simple strategy. So, and I think that's great advice. I I think it's hard for a lot of women to take that step, though. And I'm wondering if you have any advice on, you know, small steps that women can take to feel confident enough. And also, like, when do you have to maybe consider that there are landmines and maybe, like, you know. Like in your case, you must have a good relationship and trust your advisor. But when might a woman maybe not want to say that? 
Absolutely. So I am in a non-tenure track position at my institution. Um, so I'm a full-time staff member, but I'm not tenure track or tenured, um, which means that my position is precarious. Uh, I definitely am more vulnerable than someone who has tenure. So what I would recommend to women who are in vulnerable positions is to identify those allies, identify women that you know can be supportive, um, identify men, especially men who profess themselves to be feminists. And I know that sounds a little bit um, sort of controversial or accusatory to say profess themselves mm -hmm. to be feminists, because oftentimes um, men perceive themselves as being feminists, but then they don't notice like that dynamic in that meeting where I said an idea and then a man repeated it as though it were his own. I mean, my, my chair definitely perceives himself as a feminist and I would argue that he is. It's just a matter of noticing those situations. Um, so it's, it, it can be difficult to sort of call out that behavior, which is why I try not to do it in public. I think doing it in private and framing it in terms of here's how you can help me. I think that sort of that we can be a partnership, we can help each other, and, and here are specific ways that you can help. I think that tends to be better received than if I were to, to come to my chair and say, that meeting was terrible because, you know, this man treated me like I didn't know anything and you didn't even stand up for me. That would not have gone over very well. It wouldn't have accomplished the goal that I was trying to accomplish. So I struggle with this because I should be able to just go say, hey, this was terrible. Why did nobody stand up to me? Um, it seems to me like, you know, we should be able to not um, stay with those gender norms in terms of how women are supposed to behave. We're supposed to be um, nurturing. We're supposed to be cooperative. I, I recognize that. But sometimes being cooperative is the best strategy in order to get ahead, to get where it is that we want to be. Christina, like you, I am in a faculty non-tenure track position. Um, I'm okay with it because I don't believe tenure is going to be around for a long time. So um, <laughs> I'm learning so much for you because normally I be, would be the one to speak out and say, F this, that's not okay. <laughs> but you're right. You're doing it in a diplomatic way and phrasing it around um, things that address you directly and how a behavior can change and not just say this is whatever. You're coming up with a solution. You're giving a strategy. Now, that's the diplomatic and professional way to do it, folks, not the way Laura would do it. So that's <laughs> nice. And I think you're right. Um, some of the norms also come out from where we culturally live. So we've talked with different women from a few different countries or regions, and it means something else. And I've learned uh, moving to the South, it means gender norms are not normal to me, but this is a different <laughs> kind of culture exists down here to be taken into consideration with um, how you phrase things and uh, directness is looked upon as rude. Um, unlike when I was in the North in New York or back in Ontario, it, they prefer that. So yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, definitely in the South, there's much more of a cultural expectation for, you know, the way women ought to behave. Um, and I like to push those boundaries, but if you push too far past them, then you're just going to end up not accomplishing the goal that you want to accomplish. Right. So I'm really interested in jumping into the conversation about your study on gender bias and student evaluation. One of the things that the, my team does is mid-semester evaluations with faculty, and a very frequent topic among our team is this, is there gender bias and how do we account for it as we're collecting you know, this information from students? So I'm just, yeah, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. 
Um, great. So I guess I can just give a real quick overview of what we did in our study. Um, so whenever I was, uh, it was a few years ago, I had a graduate student who was assisting me with our massive online political science courses. So in the Department of Political Science at Texas Tech, um, we have about 5,000 students every semester that need to take introduction to political science. And so we moved these courses online. Um, so we have a, a very smoothly run. We have about 12 sections of the same course. They're all identical and they're all asynchronously delivered online. And the grad student and I, um, you know, I was teaching about four or five of the sections and he was teaching about four or five of the sections. And we were talking, we were just in my office one day talking about what kind of emails we were getting. So when I talked about like, man, I'm getting these emails that are just so mean. I mean, they're vicious. And he was like, man, I've never gotten anything remotely like that. And that gave us the idea, of course, as social scientists, like we can test this. We can see if there's actually a difference. So what we did is the first thing we did is we took our comments. So we took the comments in our formal in-class Texas Tech evaluation, as well as the comments on rate my professors. And what we did is we did text analysis on those to, um, to evaluate not whether the evaluations were positive or negative. So we were indifferent to whether they were saying I was a good professor or a bad professor. All we cared about is what kind of language do they use? So do they talk about personality? Do they talk about appearance? Do they talk about, um, you know, our competence? What do they refer to us as, a professor or a teacher? And we found some pretty, um, you know, striking differences. We found that in the in-class evaluations, the formal ones from Texas Tech, they were a lot more likely to refer to his comp competence, um, and they were more likely to talk about my personality. And in the Rate My Professors evaluations, which, let me tell you, the worst thing I've ever had to do for a research project was read all of my Rate My Professors evaluation. Right. Um, but what we found is they mentioned my appearance, and they called me teacher, whereas they called him professor, and they never once mentioned his appearance. So this then sort of pushed us into, all right, beyond the comments, what can we see in two identical online courses? Everything about these courses is the same. Lectures, assignments, everything's the same. Um, what is the difference between our ordinal scores? You, you know, those sort of like, you know, Likert scale, one to five, is she an effective teacher or whatever? Um, and we still found that even in identical online courses, a woman receives lower ordinal evaluation scores than a man. And so what we argue explicitly is that if we're using gender or evaluations, student evaluations to make hiring, promotion, or tenure decisions, then this is clearly discriminatory um, because we can't use a metric that is inherently biased against women. Yeah, so I know that... Uh when I, I used to teach fully online courses, and <clears throat> my first name is Patrice, which is a in uh, France is a man's name. Okay. So, in many cases, like students thought that I was actually a male professor. So, after listening to you, I feel like oh, it'd be really interesting to go back and look at the interactions I had, and I think you know this will change. I mean, back in the day when I started. Um, everything was asynchronous. So you know, mm -hmm. we very rarely used video. And of course now with video, you know, some of the things that you talked about, like students commenting on your appearance and things, um, will probably come into play in online courses as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we had in our, um, in our courses, we did have videos, we had video lectures, but I was in all of them. So it was really interesting to see that even though it was the same lectures, I mean, my lecture recorded in both because they were interacting with a man, they treated us differently in our evaluations. Now, do you think that, um, on the other side, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, the students felt like, you know, the female faculty were more nurturing or understanding, but on the extreme, I see that also sometimes as maybe being easier to manipulate or take advantage of because you're more caring, like more likely to give an extension kinds of things. Did you, did you like look at that at all? So we didn't quantify that. We didn't sort of empirically study that phenomenon. That's just more anecdotal in terms of, um, so now I have a co-instructor, Dr. Daniel Epstein, who teaches with me at Texas Tech. And um, we, of course, enforce the very same policies in the course. But just anecdotally, our experience has been that students are much more they're much more likely to respond to his sort of final, no, you may not turn this assignment in late. Um, they, they sort of either go away, they don't respond to it, or they respond with a, I'm so sorry for wasting your time. Whereas with me, I mean, I've gotten emails. Um, Laura, if you were at my, um, my Newton speech, I put some of my emails up there, the things mm -hmm. that they've said to me. Um, they said some really horrific things. Um, to to me in email and on the phone. And so my experience with what happens when I don't match that gender expectation of nurturing behavior, um, it's been very different than what my colleague, Dr. Epstein's experience has been. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember thinking, yeah, I, I'm with you, sister, because that's happened to me in my online courses. Right. Because there's an assumption that um, you will bend the rule or it'll, it will, uh, mean something if they tug at something in your heartstrings. Like I've had students say to me, like, um, how can you be so uh, condescending? Call me a bitch. Like I, I was like, no, it's what awful. profession gets this kind of disrespect? And I, and I, and I actually have had them on the phone, like saying these rude things to me. I said, you would never say this to me in person or face to face on a video conference right now. So what gives the audacity to treat me or any human like this? And they, that's when they stopped. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yet I have not, and of course this is completely anecdotal, but I have not heard from male colleagues that say they receive the same kinds of language. Um, not that students aren't, you know, always asking for exceptions to the male colleagues. They are, but just, I, I don't hear the same, how dare you, you know, how dare you mm -hmm. not take my assignment late? Who do you think you are? I think they're a lot more, a lot less likely to accept a woman's final authority. I always feel like my students are finding out, you know, okay, who else can I go to? Can I go to the Dean? Can I go to the chair? Um, Dr. Epstein ha has almost never had a student try to escalate that complaint onto management. Um, so I do think there's a gendered component. Now, again, I study gender, so I see gender everywhere, but, um, but I do think there is a gendered component to those interactions. You talk about this in um, a recent Chronicle article. So, so you talk about the, in the no more chili pepper where rate my professor gets rid of the hotness chili pepper rating. You've actually said that it's 
it's like they're being you're being evaluated on two different sets of criteria. So you comment about it's not just about the personality or what you look like. It's also you're not a source of expertise. Or why should they expect you, a woman, to be an expert in that area when, in contrast to a male instructor? So it's very interesting that I, I would agree with you on that completely. Absolutely. I really think, I mean, I'm so glad they took away the chili pepper because I think when we give a platform that sanctions allowing students to think of us as sexual objects, um, that immediately discounts our expertise as people who have advanced degrees in such, I mean, this is, we're experts. They should be excited to learn from us. And when there's, when they're asked to rate whether we're hot or not, I mean, that's putting us in a category of potential sexual partner. And that's just not what a professor should be. Yeah, I mean, I find it, it hard to believe, or maybe not, that they even allowed that to happen in the first place. Um, so do you have um, plans to expand on the study? Absolutely. Um, so a, a paper I presented last January at the Southern Political Science Association um, looked at the very same thing where we took um, 13 different identical online courses um, so each course was absolutely identical in every way. And I did a regression analysis on the um, student evaluation averages for each section, controlling for final grades. Um, so a lot of people think that final grades would be a big predictor of student evaluation scores. And what we found is that the only significant predictor of the average student evaluation score for a section was whether the professor was a minority and whether the professor was a woman. Um, and I thought as I was, you know, sort of designing this experiment that there was absolutely no chance that there would be any statistically significant difference um, because the courses were identical in every way. But of course, when I ran the results and found those, I was, I hate to say I wasn't surprised, but, um, you know, I was frustrated. But we also have some papers going on. I'm working with a colleague at Tech um, to look at peer evaluations and see if those have the same kind of bias or if those would be a potential alternative measure. And I have a colleague right now at UC Davis, and we're working on a project to see how we could embrace cooperative relationships with universities to address this. So, I mean, the initial response is, you know, this is discriminatory. Someone should sue the university and say you can't use student evaluations. What we're going to try to look at is how could we cooperate? How could we partner with the university? I don't think most universities have an intent to be discriminatory against women. Um, I don't think this is something I set out to do. So if given an alternative, I think many universities would embrace it. So we're trying to look at how can we um, think about partnerships with universities to figure out a way to evaluate teaching in a better way. Like a holistic view is really what we're looking for. And I, I do know institutions that do that, like the 360 review. So it wouldn't just be only student evaluations. It might be someone looking at a course. If it's online or course materials, it might be an observation or a peer review. It might be a colleague feedback, depending on what that looks like. Yeah. Um, your work reminded me of an article I read, and you may have read this too, um, by Dr. Julia Baird um, from Australia. She wrote a New York Times piece, I think it was last week, called Women Own Your Doctor Titles. And um, she had an interesting 
um, reflection on how women are revealing that they too have been taunted for using their titles, while many male counterparts who are academics don't receive the same sort of criticism from like using their email to, and she's talking about it specifically on Twitter. Um, so she was just baffled that men never really get the, oh, you're a doctor, so you think you're better than I am, or you think you know it all, versus a male colleague that puts doctor so-and-so in front of their name as an academic would, would never get that grief. So I, I think that would be an interesting one to triangulate with you as well. Absolutely. And I do remember that article. It went crazy on Twitter. Um, and all of my colleagues changed their handles to say, Dr. you know, Dr. Christina Mitchell or doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, again, I always tie it back to giving my male colleagues specific action items on how they can support me. And I think in this case, a really easy step that men can take is to require their professional title, um, require students to call you Dr. Mitchell. Um, because if, Men say, oh, no, you can call me by my first name. Um, They sort of have a privilege in the sense that they are assumed to be experts no matter what we call them. Um, But if they say, oh, just, you know, call me John, no big deal. Um, And then I say, no, I require you to call me Dr. Mitchell. Then I look like the unreasonable one. I've actually had student evaluation comments where students have said Dr. Mitchell, as she likes to be called, which Mm. I thought was just flabbergasting because of course I like to be called Dr. Mitchell. I worked six years on my PhD. Yes, I want to be called by my professional title. So an easy way that men can help us is to require their professional title also. Um, that's, that's such an easy step and it helps women be held at the same standard and seem just as, um, you know, just as, as invested in professional norms as, as everyone ought to be. It's interesting you say that because I never really thought of it that way. Um, My department has a policy that everyone gets called doctor. And I thought that was pretentious myself because I just came (laughs) from a different institution. I talked to my professors on first name basis and it wasn't as a disrespect because you were always respectful. But I think it was just odd to me that everyone had to be called doctor so-and-so. And I never got that until I probably read this article and thought of it deeper. I was like, oh, I guess this does slight some people who you're right feel that um, they have a privilege or a right or, or they're treated like less than. And it's interesting how you phrase that. So you made me think about that a little bit more. So thanks. Yeah. And I think, I mean, especially when we think about people from even more disadvantaged groups. Um, I mean, when I, even coming from my background, I mean, I am a white woman who comes from an upper middle class background. So I have a lot of privilege. And I think that when I require doctor, it helps women from different, you know, women of color, or just people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. I don't want them to feel like they're being unreasonable when they ask to be called their professional title. So I think it's sort of like a, if we all expect the same professional norms, then we're all saying that we're all sending the same message to our students. No one's being pretentious when they ask to be called doctor. I mean, you know, they don't, they don't tell oncologists that they're pretentious when they're called doctor. So we should expect the very same thing. So it's interesting because my when I used to teach abroad, my students called me Dr. Patrice. So it's kind of that space in between, I guess. Yeah, I've actually gotten Miss Christina before, um, which I'm like, you know, am I a preschool teacher? I'm not really sure where Miss Christina is coming from. Um, but I, when I get those emails, I respond and I say, no, you try again. I'm not responding to this one. Yeah, I say the same. Mrs. Pasquini is my mom. <laughs> Sorry, that's the wrong one. <laughs> exactly. So moving on to, if we can, wine. 
Mm. Uh, can you share a little bit about what you are enjoying tonight and what your favorite go-to wine is? Of course. Um, so tonight I'm having a Mum Brut sparkling wine. Um, I love it because when I went to Napa, I went to the winery and tried, you know, a whole flight of sparkling. Um, sparkling is one of my favorite. I know lots of people say that it gives them a headache, but for some reason it just fits with my body chemistry. So I would say my usual go-to for, especially when it's hot outside, I'm in Texas. So out here in West Texas, our highs are usually about in the 102 to 108 region in the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing like a very crisp, dry, cold champagne. Mm-hmm. It's a game that makes, they're drinking the wrong kind of champagne. That's what I say. Exactly. We can't have any Andre, you know, we got to, no. we got to get the good stuff. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't be complaining about the 90 degree heat in Cambridge. Then. <laughs> oh my goodness. My friends in Minnesota told me there was a heat advisory and it was going to be like 98. And I was like, Oh, you poor things. 98. How will you survive? I think more people would be switching to like any sparkling was it's Prosecco, Brutes, Champagne, now that it's heating up all over the world. So welcome exactly. to the sparkling club. Yeah. So we should start investing in champagne now that mm-hmm. um, global warming is going to make it so hot. There you go. We have a financial. No more Syrahs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thinking about our other part of our podcast is around story. We didn't know if there was a particular um, book, article, story that's been resonating with you lately or something you just want to share uh, with our listeners that they might want to take a look into further. In terms of stories, um, so I have to say that I've been a Star Wars fan since first grade when I saw Star Wars for the first time. Um, my dad was a big Star Wars fan and I remember my dad t- um, pulled me out of school in 1999 when The Phantom Men- Menace came out to see it in the theater during the school day. And I mean, that memory has stuck with me forever. And in terms of recent stories that have resonated with me, uh, I really loved how so many of the recent Star Wars movies have been so focused on having strong women and strong characters of color. So we've always had Princess Leia, who was a princess who did not need rescuing. Um, We've had uh, Queen Amidala, who was, you know, a politician and a powerful woman. But I think... Um, that the stories have become much more woman-centric in terms of women being being our our heroes instead of being sort of accessories to the story. So all of the new Star Wars movies, I know a lot of people really didn't like um, The Last Jedi, and I think some of that is because the story was so focused on the non-white men characters and all the men in the recent Star Wars, they were all making terrible decisions all over the place, which, you know, I see gender everywhere, so this is pretty... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what you would expect. Um, but I've just really loved seeing so much representation. Um, representation matters a lot. And I think when you're a, a person who has always seen yourself represented in movies, um, when, you know, when a white man has always been the hero of the movie, it's easy to not recognize how important that is for the people who haven't been represented. Um, and a lot of the men around me in my life have when they hear me say, oh my gosh, this is so important to me, at first their reaction is like, wait, what? Why? But as soon as they start seeing how meaningful it is to see the star of the movie, the main person of the movie, be, you know, look like me, um, I think they start really appreciating that gender is everywhere, that gender is everything, um, that, you know, the patriarchy is real, and these are steps we can take to create a more equal world. 
So I'm wondering if, uh, so my daughter is taking a gender studies class actually right now. And she was just sharing with me that she wrote a paper on how women leads and, you know, heroes are represented in movies. And that, um, you know, her perception was that they're still represented differently, like that they're not, um, they still need rescuing or they're not as strong. And I'm just wondering, like, even in some of these scenarios, do you still see that, that there's still a little bit of discrepancy of what a female hero looks like as opposed to a male hero? So I'll say when I saw Wonder Woman, um, I took my son, so I have sons, boys. And when I saw Wonder Woman, I definitely noticed that she approached the problems of the world in a different way than, than a male superhero might. Um, so she was looking for justice. She was looking for compassion. She was pushing for a world that might seem sort of feminine normative. Um, and she had a love interest and a lot of people didn't like that. But I think what that told me was it's okay to be a, be a woman and to be feminine. You can still be the hero of the story You can still be a superhero and embrace those feminine norms. If that's who you want to be and how you want to present. And it's directed by a female director, which we yeah. need to put point on. And I was thinking about that because I think female leads and heroines or stars are only as good as the writers and producers and creators behind it. And I was listening to some podcasts this morning and I was talking with um, the two creators of the TV show Glow. I don't know if you've seen yes. this about 80s yes. wrestling, women's wrestling, right? Um, and the, both Carly Mensch and Liz Flave were the two creators and they write separately but together they have two female um, producers and their star Allison Brie formerly of Community um, they're specific to her like we don't want you to put makeup on her like no she has lip gloss off get it off like we want this to be real we want women to be not represented as perfect and always touched up and we want the, those leads to tell real stories that they've experienced and other women have in that industry in, in that realm. So I thought that was an interesting take on, we just need more creators that are also women, not just actresses. Absolutely. I think I'm ready for an all female reboot of the United States. Mm. That would be great. Uh, who's going to write and direct? Uh, we're doing calls now, casting calls as well. We're going to be casting the Supreme court for mm -hmm. uh, women. Mm hmm. Well, I think this has been fun to chat with you and share a little bit about what you've been working on. Now, are there, you talked about a couple projects, or are there anything else um, bubbling up for you in the future that you want to share with our listening audience? Well, so with the um, current uh, disputes that are going on in the World Trade Organization, that is a part of my research agenda that has kind of been slumbering for a while. Um, but that's what I wrote my dissertation on, the World Trade Organization. And with Trump and Jin coming up with a whole bunch of new um, tariffs and policies that are not consistent with WTO regulations, um, I'm really hoping something interesting happens so that I can kind of pick up that thread of my research agenda as well. So we'll see. You know, the good thing about political science is that um, as, you know, as sort of a person and a voter, I get to have one set of opinions and worldviews, but then I get to step back as a political scientist and just really look at, okay, what does this mean? How can I, um, how can I situate this in what we know about the way the world works? Um, so I'm really hoping to get some, um, to get some traction on what I used to do as a political scientist and maybe, um, 
in the future tie these threads together in terms of what's the relationship between trade, international relations, and gender. Cool. I'm there anything, by that. Oh, is there anything you would re recommend, uh, you know, for our listeners to read if they're in, if they'd like to learn more about gender bias or political science or international tariff? Yeah, it could be like so podcast reads. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have a couple of good sort of accessible options for people who might want to learn more about political science. Um, so Robert Dahl is one of, a very famous political scientist, and he wrote a great book called How, uh, How Democratic is the American Constitution? Um, so it is an interesting take on what we know about democracy as political scientists and how the structure of our government fits into that definition. And then um, for international relations, one book I always assign to my undergrads and I, I love to pieces is Dan Dresner's International or Theories of International Relations and Zombies. Mm. Uh, so what he does is he thinks about the theories of international relations and how they might come into play if there were a real world zombie apocalypse. So Dan Dresner is a friend of mine and a contributor at Washington Post and a great guy. Um, so definitely go buy that book and learn about how a neoconservative look would uh, would deal with a zombie apocalypse. I'm going to check that one out. I like it. <laughs> Good. Um, I'll give one fun shout out in politics because I, I listen to Pod Save America a lot um, podcasts, but they have a new one that's uh, female-led called Hysteria, which is fantastic. And they've got um, four different women that were uh, one was a staffer for Obama, one was at another administration um, spokesperson, and it's just an interesting take on what's going around and the female lens and perspective of politics, and I love that it's called hysteria um, as a joke on what people think about women <laughs> in politics, so I'd say check that That's one out. Awesome. Is there um, anything else that we didn't chat about today that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? No, I think we covered it, and I've got a whole bottle of mum to polish off, so I guess I need to get to work. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Christina, for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us for the InVino Fabulum podcast. We appreciate all that you shared with us and our listeners, and be sure to include any resources, books, things you've mentioned, articles, and uh, we'll keep them in touch on where to contact you at our website, 3wedu.wordpress.com. This podcast wants to continue the conversation with women and about wine, so we would love to hear from you. Tell us what voices, stories, ideas, questions, and wine facts you hope we'll dig into next. Share on Twitter at 3WEDU or on the hashtag InVinoFab, and we will always welcome love and messages by email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. To stay tuned, please be sure to listen on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Stitcher. And remember, in wine, there is a story. In vino, fabulum. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>